You have probably lived through major events in history. What if you were part of the most pivotal event of the last 200 years? This podcast aims to bring to you the real war experienced by real soldiers in their own words. World War One Digger History Podcast. Most servicemen and women are brave, but there is something special about holders of the Victoria Cross. They are modest men who, above all else, want to appear ordinary. But they are, of course, nothing of the sort. Many things have changed the face of warfare, but the nature of human bravery and raw courage remains as impressive now as it ever was. And tonight, I would like to take you into the rolling veldtland of southern Africa and into the kingdom of the greatest military tribal society in that part of the world. The Zulus. <coughs> what? Who are you? I'm the fat checker. The what? I'm the fat checker. Or to be more precise, your fat checker. No, you're not. I don't need one. Don't need one? Listen, they could build a 93-metre-tall, 225-tonne statue off the southern tip of Manhattan in New York with all the liberties you have been taking with some of these facts. So I've decided to keep a close eye on you. Uh, like what? Like telling people that Charles Upham... When he was in the truck and he uh, first lay eyes on the place, uh, he was quoted to say, What the hell is this place? It looks bloody awful to me. Here's what actually happened. After now 41 years, I remember only too well that day, a Saturday in October 1944, when I was adjutant at Kovlitz, and it was reported to me that a new arrival had just come into the camp. He came from New Zealand, and apparently his name was Upham. None of us had ever heard of you, Charles, at that time. All this business about two VCs was totally unknown to us. Having recently had the bad experience of the Germans planting a traitor in our camp, and we not having taken any notice of this, he then managed to hand over to the Germans details of all our escape schemes and tunnels. I was determined this shouldn't happen again, 
So I got hold of the New Zealander I knew best in the camp, a splendid doctor called Fred Moody, and I asked him to go down and check that the Upham we knew had just arrived was a bona fide New Zealand officer. Well, Fred went down and saw you and reported back in a few minutes that he did know all about you, that you were a proper chap, and that you must be allowed into the camp and should become a friend of all of us. Charles was actually in the shower, <laughs> and I was in the courtyard, and I chose this particular uh, turn of phrase because I hoped that if the man in the shower happened to be Charles Upham, I naturally hoped that I would get a positive and significant response. Well, I, I almost, almost frightened to ask, actually, but did, did he get that response? I got him? that response, and Charles came over to the grill window, and I was able to identify him as Charles Upham, and lately to, I, to vouch for him. I see. Charles, do you remember what you said in reply to uh, Dr Moody that day? No, I remember Fred calling out, Hiya Kiwi, you see. And I suppose only a New Zealander would have uh, known what he was talking about. Right. I remember that and, and uh, said a few words. Well, actually, I do have the copy of those words here. If you don't mind, I'll read them out. <laughs> the words were, what the hell is this place? It looks bloody awful to me. Uh, <clears throat> well, as you can see, all the facts are stringently checked. Eventually. What? Eventually they are stringently checked. I spent two weeks just mulling over how to present this period in history and absorbing information from books, videos and websites. How to lay out this in a way that would avoid insult or offence to either side, those of the indigenous to the culture of the Zulus and to those of the British heritage and, well, perhaps of a nostalgic Victorian persuasion. I think the best way to open up is with the facts. And now that I have a fact checker on board, I feel confident that I can go forward with that. And uh, let's have a bit of fun, maybe. The first episode that I'd like to look at is the structure, culture and brief history of the Zulus and the increasing tensions between them and the greatest empire of the world of the time. The tiny island chain of Great Britain, small in size but mighty in stature, bestriding the earth like a colossus, bringing the shining light of civilization to nations that yearn for it like China who has the only unbroken civilization and culture lasting for 5,000 years. Well, yes, but perhaps it was a bad example. Uh, well, like India, yeah, that's better, uh, where Britain stretched out its hands with the guidance of men like Clive and brought India prosperity into the modernity and gave it stability and... Wrong. What? India has suffered more from British colonization than any other part of their worldwide empire. I won't bore you with economic statistics, as to say Britain drained dry food and resources for its own profit, resulting in the major famines that followed, 
their unwillingness to ease food quotas even to the point of the people producing the food not having enough to eat. Oh, come on! I kid you not, Paul. For example, 1769, the Great Bengal Famine. 10 million people died. That's about one-third of the then population of Bengal. 1783, the Chalicia Famine. 11 million people may have died during the years 1782 to 84. Severe famine, large areas were depopulated. 1791, the aptly named Skull Famine. More than 11 million people may have died during the years 1788 to 94. One of the most severe famines known. People died in such numbers that they could not be cremated or buried. The Southern Indian Famine of 1876 to 78. 5.5 million in British Territory died. Total famine mortality estimates vary from 6.1 to 10.3 million. I have left out eight other famines in this time period that didn't reach over the 5 million mark for the sake of brevity. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Zulu Wars. Okay, hello everybody, this is Paul Harbottle speaking for Victoria Cross Podcast. And today with me we have, in a general conversation, um, a friend of mine called... Thank you, Tom. (laughs) His name is Alfred Savanda, and he hails from Zimbabwe, which is just north, uh, for people who don't have easy access to a map, just north of Zululand. Okay, Alfred... um, Thank you very much for coming today. I must say, come. And um, okay, now, could you uh, tell me the origins of the Zulu uh, people? Where did they originally uh, migrate from? What area? Uh, the Zulu people they originally uh, come from South Africa. Right. Yes, in the Natal province. Okay, and they, they moved north, did they? Yes, uh, they actually moved north. Yep. Yes, and uh, they were, you know, keko breeders. So they were moving from one place to another in search of uh, the greener pastures. Right, okay. Yeah, and uh, they used to live in clans. Okay. Yeah. How did, the, how did the clans exactly work? Like, was it just small family groups or... Did was the greater structure? This is before Shaka. Um, before Shaka came along, was there like small family groups or was there larger uh, clan like groups? Uh, actually, what happened is uh, they lived as a clan, uh, so it would be a, a group of related right. people, yeah. So they would live together as a group, yep, and uh, what they usually they, they, they did is uh, they used to move from one place to another yep. in search of um, foods as their food. Okay. Yes, because they were actually uh, hunters and gatherers. Right. Okay. And this is uh, now. When did they start domestication of cattle? Um. Actually, it was around the. 1700 years okay yes that's when they started uh having kirko yep yeah okay. so um for the search of the pastures they used to move from one place to another and uh, they used to be called the nomads so right. the nomadic yep yeah. okay so 
at, at this stage of the game, uh, on to understand uh, that before Shaka uh, came onto the scene, there was a period um, of intense rivalry between the clans was there, and like there was a lot of inter-clan warfare going on. Yes, uh, that was because of, you know, they wanted someone to lead them. So in, in that case, they, there was some kind of uh, a struggle on who was going to be the king or the leader of the people. Right. Yes, it was before Shaka Zulu yep. was the leader by then. Yep. Cool. Well, Alfred, would you be able to tell me the story uh, behind Shaka? Oh, yes, please. Um, Shaka was the king of the Zulu. So he was uh, in reign as from the 1816th to the 1828. He was born in 1787 in KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa. And uh, he died in 1828 in KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa. Yeah, he's best known for uniting many tribes into the Zulu kingdom. So uh, I'll say a little bit about uh, Shaka's biography. So here it goes his biography as uh, Shaka Zulu was growing up. Shaka was born into the small South African clan of Zulus in the 1782. His father was the chief of the Zulus and his mother Nandi was uh, the daughter of the chief of a nearby clan. Even as a young boy of five or six years old, Shaka had the job of watching the sheep and cargo. He was responsible for protecting them from wild animals. Like any other boys in the African culture, uh, those are the kinds of uh, uh, small jobs that people do. As they grow up, there is uh, this division of labor among uh, the people. Yep. So with the boys, uh, they look after Keko, they fetch firewood, uh, while it's uh, with the girls, they do domestic part of the work, like fetching water, cleaning the house. So um, when Shaka was still a young boy, his father drove him and his mother out of the village. They were disgraced and had to find refuge with another clan. While growing up in the strange new clan, the other boys teased and bullied Shaka. Shaka's only refugee was with his mother, who he loved very much. As Shaka grew older, he became tall and strong. He began to be a leader among the boys because of his physical abilities. However, Shaka was also very smart and ambitious. He wanted to rule over the boys who had bullied him as a child. He dreamed he would become chief someday. Shaka and his mother became part of the clan of a powerful chief named Dingiswayo, where Shaka trained as a warrior. Shaka soon discovered ways to improve the method of fighting. He found that taking off his sandals and fighting barefooted helped him maneuver better. Shaka began to go barefooted everywhere in order to toughen up his feet. He also had a blacksmith design him a better spear that could be used in hand-to-hand combat in addition to being thrown. So up until then, uh, most of the warriors were sandaled 
and he decided to take his sandals off and he's basically got a longer sp- the, the normal throwing spear and he's reconfigured it has he yes yeah so why he took off the sandals he just wanted to toughen up yep his feet right and yeah. and that the spear that he made was it's an assegai isn't it it's an assegai yes oh, yes okay yeah. cool yes I've, I've never seen one in the flesh and i I imagine they'd be a formidable weapon, you know, considering how... What about two inches broad on, on the blade? At their uh, about three inches. Three uh, inches? Yes. Oh, my God. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. during those days, there were no guns. No. So no. the only thing that they could use was a spear. So that's three inches wide, not three inches long. It was quite a bit longer, the a actual longer. blade. Yeah, yeah. yeah. About yeah. what seven, six or seven inches, I guess. About six, seven, somewhere there. Oh, you yeah. wouldn't want that coming at you, would you? <laughs> no. <laughs> so uh, they would carry shields with them, uh, just to you know, if if they're fighting, yep. they use the shield to divert any spears or yeah. Normally, what they used to do is uh, when they were faced with the um, with the enemies, the good thing that they used to do is to lie down. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And in, so when the so they would lie down before they on attacked. the ground. Yes. Yes. Yeah. What What did that achieve? Uh, you you'd be hiring from the spears. Oh, okay. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. So when they were throwing them, it was less likely just to hit them. To hit them. Yep. yep. Yeah. Yep. No, that's interesting. Yeah. So uh, with Shaka, he used his strength, courage, and unique fighting methods to become one of the fiercest warriors. In the clan, he was soon a commander in the army. So he became chief of the Zulu. Yep. When Shaka's father died, uh, he became chief of uh, Zulu with the help of Dingiswayo. Yep. So with Dingiswayo, he was like uh, an elder in the clan. Yeah. So he was uh, he trained him on how to become the best warrior. So Shaka began to take over nearby clans and gain soldiers for the Zulu. So what normally happens is that in order for you uh, to be a powerful man, you've got to conquer other clans. Right. Yeah, so Shaka, that's what he did. So when Tikiswayo died, Shaka took control of the surrounding tribes and became the most powerful leader in the area. So in 1818, Shaka fought a great battle against the army of his main rival for control of the region, Sweden. The battle took place at Gokhi Hill. Shaka's army was greatly outnumbered, but his men were trained in his way of fighting and used superior battle tactics to defeat Sweden. The Zulus were now the most powerful in the region. So the Zulu kingdom, Shaka continued to train and build his army. He conquered many of the surrounding chiefdoms. At one point, Shaka had a well-trained army of around 40,000 soldiers. Wow. Yeah. That's, a, that's uh, a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Yep. During those days, um, the days of Shaka, yep. uh, they never wanted any person to conceive twins. They didn't? No. no. How, why is that? Uh, it's like uh, if you gave birth to the twins, it was regarded as you know 
it was a bad thing it was a bad thing it was taboo right so okay. what they would do is uh is either they would kill the twins wow I, yeah. I, so was that because it was to give the one child the greater possibility of life and more resources to that child yeah okay. and the most respected people were the woman who gave birth to the man right yes. okay so because they valued the boys a lot because they're the ones you know who would go to the wall so so the girls still get a bit of a bad bad go of it yeah. <laughs> well the, the zulus aren't the only ones that do that <laughs> guilty right here i'm afraid <laughs> it's just a just as a, a question what what were the um, what was it like the status between men and women uh in zulu uh culture like how are women generally perceived uh in culture like they've obviously got very clear boundaries whereas the men would go off and they would hunt and uh, look after did they look after the cattle the men yes the men they did right and that yes. was their primary occupation was it yes and the women did well everything else i the guess domestic chores right yeah. <laughs> okay all right um so shaka was a strong but brutal leader anyone who disobeyed an order was immediately killed he sometimes massacred a whole village in order to send a message oh, god yeah that's, I mean, that's ruling with an iron fist. Now, this was before his mother had died? Or was this... I knew, knew it got a lot worse afterwards because um, she seemed to be some sort of restraining uh, force on him. Yeah. But but he was a lot worse in the... He, he was a lot worse later, but he was still killing villagers at all in one go before she died, was Before he? the mother died, yes. Oh, jeez, I'll tell you yeah. what. Because <laughs> during that time... Because he had, uh, you know, gained a lot of power. Yep. Yeah, the mother wouldn't stop him. Yep, she can only do so much. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So when Shaka's father Nandi died, he was heartbroken. He forced the entire kingdom to mourn her. Mm. You see? He had to force everyone. Or else. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> People, they were afraid of him because, mm. you know, yep. if you read... So if you didn't listen to his orders, you know, that next thing, that's death. Yep. So he issued an order that no new crops were to be planted for a year. He also demanded that no milk be used for a year and that all pregnant women would be killed. He had around 7,000 people executed for not mourning enough for his mother. So all pregnant women at the time of her death were to be yeah, killed yes so that's 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 pretty extreme isn't it <laughs> yeah, that was barbaric you know he yep. was playing a court yep yeah yeah, mm. yeah. so he, he just lost his mind completely by that stage of the game and he stopped the people from uh, farming you know for a year yeah oh. while it's they got most of their food from the fields it's strange that like you see in history time and time again you'll get dictators because this is essentially what he is by now yeah um that they're more interest, interested in punishing their own people than they are in anything else just about isn't it it's yeah like hitler He's, was the same at the end of the war and, yeah and stalin was well he was just punishing his own people <laughs> pretty well from the start you know <laughs> instead of making the people happy mm. yeah but you're yeah, punishing them 
So the people had uh, enough of Shaka's cruelty and were ready to revolt. Shaka's brothers realized that Shaka had gone crazy. They assassinated him um, in 1828 and buried him in an unmarked grave. Until today, it's not clear where exactly Shaka was buried. Right. Yeah. So people, of course, you know, uh, they're always debating about it. And a lot of it would be myth by now, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So Shaka recruited young boys to carry his warrior supplies, freeing the warriors to move faster from Beko to Beko. So he forced his soldiers to go barefooted at all the time so their feet would become tough and they would be more agile in a fight. Now, I, I have to ask at this point, because I, I read about this, and it, uh, the biggest question that came up in my mind is... If you had done it in Australia, uh, like the Aborigines here um, pretty well are able to get around barefoot, but we've got some pretty vicious prickles. Yeah. What, what kind of like vegetation, like are we talking about big grass barbs and things like that that they can stand on down there? It's, it's, there like it's a fairly rocky area too, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's a rocky area. Uh, there are uh, stones, you know. Yep. And uh, we've got in South Africa, there are Trees which produce long prickles like a negro. Oh, and, yeah. aca- and acacia trees as well. I just th- they they grow down there, don't they? Yes. Yes, and yeah. they, their spines are like this oh, long, yeah. aren't they? Terrible. Yeah. Mm. Oh. <laughs> so it means you know, uh, Chakasorias, they used to endure all that. Yep. Yeah, and you wouldn't complain. You you, you dare not. No. Complaining it means you know death. you're asking for death. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, his capital um, city was called Bulawayo. Bulawayo? Yeah. Okay. Bulawayo. Kwa Bulawayo. Bulawayo, it means uh, a battlefield. A battlefield. Yes. Right. So, this Kwa Bulawayo, Bulawayo, now, of course, they call it Bulawayo, uh, is uh, in Matebeland area. Yep. Yeah, in southern Africa. In Zimbabwe. Okay. Yeah. So it's in Matibele and North. Because I've heard the name before. Like it, it does come up, um, come up in news from time to time, sort of thing. Um, with you know, there's something coming out of South Africa, sort of thing. So it's just Zululand now has just been incorporated totally into the South African yeah. country now, hasn't it? Yeah. Because it is uh, said so that Shaka, when he was running away, he he moved from South Africa hmm. to the to Zimbabwe. Right. Yeah, that's in southern Africa. Yep. And he circled in Kwabulawayo, which is Bulawayo now. It's known as Bulawayo. Yeah, Bulawayo meaning that uh, you know they were fighting because there a lot of people were dying. Yep. During his uh, reign. Sounds horrendous. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds horrendous. Oh, look, there was a TV show that I was speaking to you about, and I think it glossed over an awful lot of this. Like it, it put him in a fairly kind of noble um, I, I suppose people would it's it's interesting do they think like do people uh, people in Zululand do they tend to think of him still as the national hero do they or what how is he thought of today like they must go well he put us all together but he was a bit of a bastard when he started they really admired him 
Yeah. Yeah. So uh, because of having that those powers yeah. instilled in him, yeah. that's one thing which caused him to be, you know, a, a cruel leader. Right. Yes. So had, had otherwise, he had a, a good posture. Yep. Yeah, of a warrior, uh, and he was strong, and he was a good leader. A kind of man may not have been able to do what he did. Yeah. 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 But okay. he ended up misusing his powers. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty realistic way of looking at it, isn't it? I yeah. suppose, you know. So well he did all these things but we now have a cultural identity sort of thing, which we would not have had without him, I guess. Yeah. Because at the end it was his brothers who turned against him. Because mm. they couldn't stand his role. Yep. Yeah. And it sounds like they yeah, well they they were a lot saner than what he oh, was, yeah. that's for sure. My God. Mm. <laughs> They, it's the pregnant, killing the pregnant women. Uh, oh, that's, that's the one for me. That's the that's one. That's the worst yeah. thing you can do. Red flag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Um, so, so from then, once he'd been assassinated. Yep. Yeah. So the, the boys would carry the luggage. Um, and now in the fighting itself, um, the, the tactics that... Shaka used, you mentioned that that he developed his own style of fighting. Would you be able to describe the strategy behind that and how they used to work in formation? So uh, what they used to do is uh, when they go out to fight, yep. yeah, they would form a, some kind of a horn-like right. yeah, to encircle the enemies. Right, kind yeah. of like the, the head of a buffalo sort of yes. thing. Yes, yep. yeah. So they their way of communicating and uh, you know the way they alerted each other that now this is what we're doing. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so during that time they were using bows and arrows. Yep. Yes, they are fighting. They they preferred not to use ranged weapons though, or they they, they were still using ranged weapons but not as much. Not as much, yeah. No, okay. Yeah. He'd prefer to go toe-to-toe yeah, with people. people. And um, I was reading it and trying to get my head around the way he was doing it. And he would use an encirclement tactic as well, wouldn't he? Like he'd have the outer edges of the formation come around the outside sort of thing. When they were fighting uh, other clansmen, like, was there a specific style of... Uh, combat that they would use in in regards to how they use their assegai and shield, like what what were their basic training? Do you know or uh, actually why they were tr- they, they trained themselves on how to use the assegais? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because uh, during that time, um, uh, before they had metal, they were using they, they would take maybe branches of tree, of trees yep. and sharpen sharpen them up to make spears right yeah okay and and then of course he was using like um iron tip weapons yeah which would give him a massive advantage over everybody around yeah. him i guess i will talk a little bit about uh, during the reign of shaka yep so during the reign of shaka and his successors the growth and strength of Zulu nation lay in its military organization and skills. So the military was organized around the systems of Ugubutwa. So Ugubutwa it means to be enrolled 
Okay. Yeah. Yep. Uh, which largely did away with uh, initiation ceremonies. Uh, in terms of the system, each age set, uh, that is uh, a group of young men of the same age, was incorporated into the same regime, regiment. Ibuto. Ibuto, it means the army. And right. uh, yeah, singular. So, so they were creating like regiments sort of thing, like, yeah. like four groups uh, of soldiers that were loyal to each other. Sort each of other, thing. yes. Okay. So they used to call them Ibuto. Right. So that's in singular. Then in plural, they called Amabuto. Okay. Yeah. So Ugubutwa also applied to to girls. Right. Ugubutwa that's grouping them together. Yeah. But in most cases, they belonged to an age set rather than a regiment. So Amabuto uh, were accommodated at military barracks. Ikanda. Uh, Singular, amakanda, plural. Ikanda, it means, it's just like a group. Yep. Ikanda, it means the head. Yep. Yeah. So when you said that the girls are enrolled into the regiments as well, um, I'm just, my, my only my only reference that I can think of is in the film Zulu, the 1964 film, they had like a whole line of girls being married to a whole line of boys. Were they then, at that stage of the game, the girls were married to the boys and they all formed the one unit. Unit, yes. Okay, so they could move that unit where they needed to be. To be, yeah, okay. together with the yeah, girls. Which would keep down the, the, the amount of dysfunction of the soldiers moving around. Around, yes. That's ingenious. <laughs> that's very clever. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, no, that's very good. Mm. So in addition to military duties, the incisua, Insizwa, it means young men. Yep. Young men, they were called insizwa. Insizwa. Yeah, insizwa. Were involved in the repair and the maintenance of their barracks and were called upon to perform duties at both their barracks and the royal residence. So these are the young boys. Right. Those were their duties to right. maintain the barracks. Yep. Uh, they functioned as keepers of the national head messengers of for the king and domestic policemen and also saw to crop production for the royal household so an important feature of military organization was that there were always men undergoing a period of military training and so it was easy for the king to assemble an effective military force at short notice so as they grew up you know doing all these uh, duties, they're also being trained. Right. Yeah. So they could pick up an entire group and then just move them wherever they needed they them to go. Them. And then everybody with them would go and like they'd take their cattle and everything and then they'd just build up a new, uh, a new area. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's incredibly mobile. Mm. And really yeah. flexible. Because they never used to live in one place. No. They were moving from one place to another. Otherwise, I guess the cattle would just strip the place bare, wouldn't they? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Shaka, he reduced his shoes to more manageable proportions and trained his men to use their shoes to hook their opponents, sure and reach aside, thus exposing his left flank to the Zulu warrior spear. 
I mean, I heard about this. Yes, yeah, so on. that was one of the tactics that <laughs> yes. he was using. And it was very effective against rifles it as was. well. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so Shaka also developed a strategy of concentrating his soldiers into a fighting formation resembling a buffalo head. So in the center or chest was the greatest concentration of men comprising the most experienced fighters. They were deployed in two parallel formations so that the soldiers in the front would engage the enemy, while those in the rear would be hidden from sight. Right. So the enemies, they might think that, oh, these are the only people who are there to fight us, not knowing that there are some uh, taking some kind of an ambush at the back. They'll <laughs> yeah. find out soon enough. <laughs> mm. So this strategy was designed firstly to deceive the enemy into believing that they were being opposed by a relatively small force. Yep, and that moving to engage. Yeah. 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 And secondly, so that the soldiers held in reserve would be able to reinforce the frontline soldiers if necessary. So as they would be fresh, they could also chase and outdistance the defeated enemy in retreat. Uh, emanating from the chest were, were two horns whose purpose was to encircle the enemy. Right. So they will form some kind of a horn. Mm. Yeah. They, they need very good warriors to, to hold off the, the larger group, like on, on the core, on, you know, in the loins, I guess. Yeah. Yes. So the best warriors they were sent at the forefront. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So when attacking, a common tactic was to faint with one horn while the other concealed in the bush and long grass could sweep around unseen to surround the enemy. Uh, these tactics proved to be a decisive factor in the Zulu, uh, in the Zulu kingdom's dramatic rise to power. So when a regiment had accomplished a certain period of service to the king, which could be up to 10 years, the, the king would decree that the members of a particular age set could marry and sew on the head, the head ring. You know, they used to wear head rings. Yep. Yeah. What was the head ring made out of, just out of curiosity? Uh, cowhide or...? It was made of cowhide. Right, yeah. Yep. Yep. Mm. So one of the results of controlling the age at which men could marry was a balance in Zulu society between population growth and available resources. Now, I was just thinking when you were talking about the head ring, sorry, because I was, I was a bit, little bit far behind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> was there, They clearly had ranks, didn't they? Like they had generals and, you know, people who were in, who were in control of the larger formations and then they'd have smaller commanders going down. Yeah, so it was like uh, through your dressing. Right. Uh, they can identify your position. Right. Yeah. So, did they the various different people dress differently, or was what what signified a commander and a lesser commander and a lesser commander on the battlefield, sort of thing? Do you know, or um, did they have distinctive dress, or um, was it something on their shield, perhaps, or uh, not actually on their shield, right? By the kind of cross that they wore. Right. Yeah, you can easily identify that. Oh, he seems to be holding a position. Right. Yeah, in this okay. clan. Okay. So yeah. because everybody knew their job so well, yeah. they, they just had to look to 
one person standing where they should be. Oh, he must be the commander. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it's just the same like, uh, you know, the, there was an animal which was mainly cured for, for the chief. Like uh, people who were in the Zulu army, they were not allowed to eat that kind of animal. Oh, yeah, it was the porcupine. Oh, God. No one was allowed. <laughs> no one was allowed to kill and eat a porcupine. They must be pretty good eating. <laughs> Commander yeah, it was, it was is welcome a to it. <laughs> yeah, it was special meat yeah, for a chief or a king. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's unbelievable. Mm. Yeah. Now, is that kind of thing, um, like, does that run down through to today as well? Is Like, is it still a special meat? Do you know, or...? Uh, these days is now um, the protected species. Right. Okay. So no so one it's a is very allowed. Special meat. Yeah. <laughs> no one is allowed to kill. Uh, yes. No. That you be getting a bit of trouble. During those that. days, you know, long ago, uh, there were no restrictions. Yep. Yeah. But yep. now everything's controlled. They want to make sure that you know God. these animals they are preserved. <laughs> For the next generation, otherwise they'll be extinct. Well, Australia could learn something from that, I think. Yeah. Yes, we're going through ours at a pretty rapid rate. Mm. Um, all right. Now, as I was reading through, I thought, oh, geez, he's a, he's a bit of a callous bastard, old ah. shaka. <laughs> but I didn't realise he was just a complete um, nut up by the, by oh, the sound of that. That's, yeah. Yeah, that is crazy. You just imagine his like, half-brothers just looking at each other sort of thing as he's giving mm. these commands going... We have to do something about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think at the end, you know, they ended up mm. talking to each other that, guys, let's stand up for ourselves. Yep. Yeah, because yep. they couldn't take it anymore. No, no. Mm. And the other thing is, he wasn't treating them like brothers. No. Mm. Well, he was never really, I don't think he necessarily ever felt like he was a part, because he wasn't, because he was ostracized fairly early on wasn't he? he him and his mother weren't you know they didn't fit in with the rest of the, of the group did yeah, they yeah no yeah. and mm. i think he's probably held so it's, it's like he, he relied too much on the mother mm. shaka had ruled for 12 short years from 1816 to 1828 but in that time had forged a nation and an army that in time would take on the most professionally trained army in the world, equipped with the most advanced weaponry of its time, and with iron assegai and cowhide shields, send them running for the border and safety. By the 1850s, the British Empire had colonies in southern Africa, having won them off the Dutch in the to and fro of the Napoleonic Wars. Bordering on the various Boer settlements, Native African kingdoms such as the Zulus, the Basuetho, and numerous other indigenous tribal areas and states. The British interactions with these various nations followed a pointedly expansionist policy. The Cape Colony had been formed after the Anglo-Dutch Treaty in 1814 as Britain claimed the spoils of the first rounds of the Napoleonic War, and as the Dutch colony of Cape Town was permanently ceded by Holland and its territory expanded very substantially through the 19th century, Natal in the southern eastern Africa was proclaimed a British colony on the 4th of May in 1843 after the British government had simply annexed the Boer Republic of Natalia. Matters were brought to a head when three sons of a brother of the Zulu chief, Sarayo, 
organised a raid into Natal and carried off two women who were under British protection. But by and large, things had remained tranquil for several decades. However, the discovery of diamonds in 1867 near the Vale River changed everything. And some 550 miles, and that's 890 kilometres in, in proper parlance, northeast of Cape Town, ended the isolation of the Boers in the interior and changed South African history forever. The discovery triggered a diamond rush that attracted people from all over the world, not unlike the gold rushes of Victoria, which turned Kimberley into a town of 50,000 within five years and drew the attention of British imperial interests. In 1870s, the British annexed West Griqualand, land, site of the Kimberley diamond discoveries. In 1874, Lord Carnarvon, Secretary of State for the colonies, who had successfully brought about Federation in Canada in 1867, thought that a similar scheme might work just as well in South Africa. The South African plan called for a ruling white minority over a black majority, which would provide a large pool of cheap labour for the British sugar industries and plantations and the mines. In short, it was slavery, but without that troublesome title. It's this sort of thing that gives colonialism such a bad name. Africa was a giant game of monopoly and the British Empire was playing the banker. In the attempt of extending British influence in 1875, Carnarvon approached the Boer states of the Orange Free State and Transvaal Republic and tried to organise a federation of the British and Boer territories. But um, I think the Boers sniffed him out a little bit and they turned him down. In 1877, Sir Bartle Freer was made High Commissioner for Southern Africa by Lord Carnarvon. Carnarvon appointed Freer to the position on the understanding that he would work to enforce Carnarvon's Confederation plan and in return, Freer could then become the first British Governor of the Federated Southern African Dominion. Freer was sent to South Africa as High Commissioner to bring about this plan. One of the obstacles of such a scheme was the presence of the independent states of the South African Republic, informally known as the Transvaal Republic and the Kingdom of Zululand. Bartle Freer wasted no time in putting the scheme forward and manufacturing a Cassis Valley, which, which is, I, I guess, a fancy way of saying a reason for going to war, or at least a legitimate or semi-legitimate reason. He had the Cassibali against the Zulus by exaggerating the significance of a number of recent incidents. By 1877, Theopolis Shepstone, the British Secretary for the Native Affairs in Natal, annexed the Transvaal Republic for Britain using a special warrant. I guess the warrant said, nice land, we'll take it. The Transvaal Boers objected but as long as the Zulu threat remained, found themselves in a place between two threats, a colonial rock and a Zulu hard place, if you will. 
They feared that if they took up arms against the British annexation actively, King Ketswayo and the Zulus would take the opportunity to attack. However, the success of British annexations, and in particular the annexation of West Gwikwalaland, caused the climate of simmering unease for the Boer Republics and lay the foundations of the Boer War, which would come in due time. Shepstone rallied against the disruptive effect of allowing Ketswayo's regiment to remain in place. Zulu power, he said, is the root and the real strength in all the native difficulties in South Africa. In December 1877, he wrote to Carnarvon, Ketswayo is the secret hope of every petty independent chief, hundreds of miles from him, who feels a desire for his colour to prevail. And it will not be until this hope is destroyed that they will make up their minds and submit to the rule of civilization. Oh, trigger words, eh? <laughs> Earlier in October 1877, Shepstone had attended a meeting with the Zulu leaders near the Blood River to resolve the land dispute between the Zulus and the Boers. He suggested a compromise with the Boers, and the meeting broke up without clear resolutions. He turned against the Zulus with a vengeance, saying he had come into the possession of the most, and I quote, the most incontrovertible, overwhelming and clear evidence, never previously disclosed for supporting the claims of the Boers. He rejected the Zulus as, quote again, characterised by lying and treachery, and to an extent that I could not have believed even savages were capable of. So, yeah, that pretty well gives you an idea of where he's sitting on this. I, I think once Freer and Shepstone worked out that they were going to be uh, sitting in the middle of all of this, particularly Freer, I think the idea of being in in control of an entire country sort of thing really changed him like i i was watching a couple of documentaries and when he first got there he was talking to ketswayo and he was he he was able to get on with him quite well and and ketswayo considered him a friend in fact you know at this point in time before all of this had happened the zulus were considered an ally of the British uh, government. Uh, but, of course, the diamonds changed all of that. And, um, well, we must have our diamonds. Now, Shepstone, in his capacity as Brif British governor of Natal, had expressed concerns about the Zulu army under King Kutsuayo and the potential threat to Natal, especially given the adoption by some of the Zulus of old muskets and out-of-date firearms. So, <laughs> in his new role as administrator of Transvaal, Shepstone was now responsible for protecting the Transvaal and had direct involvement in the Zulu border dispute from the side of the Transvaal. Persistent Boer representations and Paul Kruger's diplomatic manoeuvrings added to the pressure. There was incidents involving Zulu paramilitary actions on either side of the Natal uh, Transvaal border, and Shepstone increasingly began to regard 
King Kitsuayo as having permitted such, well, he called them outrages, um, and described it as being in a defiant mood. King Kitsuayo now found no defender in Natal, save the Bishop of Natal, John Colenso. Now, Colenso advocated for the native Africans in Natal and Zululand, uh, who had been unjustly treated by the colonial regime in Natal. Langer Liberley had been falsely accused of rebellion in 1873 and following a charade of trial was found guilty and imprisoned on Robben Island. Um, most of you will remember of a certain age that Robben Island was the prison island that Nelson Mandela was kept on. So, yeah, just a bit of a side note. <laughs> Colencio found himself further estranged from the colonial society in Natal. Bishop Colencio's concern about the misleading information that was being provided by the colonial secretary in uh, London by Shepstone and the governor of Natal prompted him to champion the cause of the Zulus against Boer oppression and official encroachments. He was a prominent critic of Sir Bartle Freer's efforts to depict the Zulu Kingdom as a threat to Natal. Colenso's campaign revealed the racialist foundation underpinnings of the colonial regime in Natal and made him enemies amongst the colonists. So, big clap for Colenso, at least he's trying. British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, Tory's administrator in London, didn't actually want a war with the Zulus. And Sir Michael Hicks Beach, who would replace Carnarvon, writes, The fact is that matters in Eastern Europe and India wore so serious an aspect that we cannot have a Zulu war in addition to other greater and two possible troubles. However, Sir Bartle Freer had already been Cape Colony's Governor and High Commissioner in 1877 with the brief of creating a confederation of South Africa from the various British colonies, Boer republics and native states. And his plans were well advanced. He had concluded that the powerful Zulu kingdom stood in his way and so was receptive to Shepstone's argument that King Kitswayo and his Zulu army posed a threat to the peace of the region now, all of this had been concluded without the Zulus attacking anyone, and they had simply been sitting there stationary. Preparations for a British invasion of the Zulu Kingdom had been underway now for months, so look, <laughs> the war was always going to happen. Uh, I guess it was a matter of when rather than if, uh, as soon as they struck diamonds. In December 1878, Notwithstanding the reluctance of the British government to start yet another colonial war, Freer presented Kitswayo with the ultimatum that the Zulu army be disbanded and that the Zulus accept a British resident. This was totally unacceptable to the Zulus, uh, as it effectively meant that Kitswayo, had he agreed, would have lost his throne. Kitswayo had not responded by the end of the year, so an extension was granted by Bartle Freer, 
in the attempt to appear reasonable until the 11th of January in 1879. Katsuo returned no answer to the demands of Bartolfria, and in January 1879, a British force under the Lieutenant General Frederick Augustus, the second Baron of Chelmsford, invaded Zululand. And I must emphasise this, as it does tend to get swept away under the historical carpet, but he did it without authorisation by the British government. The exact date of the invasion was the 11th of January in 1879. Chelms crossed the Buffalo River at a little old place called Rourke's Drift, which has now become a mission station. Chelmsford held the command of 4,700 men, which included 1,900 white troops and 2,400 African auxiliaries. Lord Chelmsford, the commander-in-chief of the British forces during the war, initially planned a five-pronged invasion of Zululand, composed of over 15,000 troops in five columns, designed to encircle the Zulu army and force it to fight, as he was concerned that the Zulus would avoid battle, and that was his biggest concern. In the event, at the end of all of this, Chelmsford settled on only three invading columns, with the main centre column now consisting of 7,800 men, comprising of the previously called number three column and Durnford's number two column, under his direct command. He moved his troops uh, forward to a camp at Helpmeeker, past Greytown, on the 9th of January in 1879, they moved to Rourke's Drift and early on the 11th of January commenced crossing the Buffalo River into Zululand. Three columns were to invade Zululand from the lower Tugela River, Rourke's Drift and Utrecht respectively, their objective being Ulundi, the royal capital. It was only at this point that Kitswayo mobilised his forces and set out towards the British forces. While Chetsuayo's army numbered perhaps 35,000 men, it was essentially a, a militia force, which could be called out in time of national danger, but had a very limited logistical capacity and could only stay in the field for a few weeks before the troops would be obliged to return to their civilian duties. Zulu warriors were armed primarily with assegai thrusting spears, uh, and also they had what were called were equaler clubs. Uh, now, now, many years ago, I watched a demonstration, uh, and what the Zulus would do uh, when they were going when they went to hand to hand with the the British. And you've got to remember, the British had uh, a rifle, and they also had a bayonet affixed to it, you know, for hand to hand. And the reach of the 
the bayonet was actually quite a bit longer than the assegai and the cowhide. But they, the, um, the Zulus had developed a kind of, they'd, they'd lift up the spear and they'd drive it down and they'd like pull, it was designed, their technique was designed to pull the shield down so that they could deliver the thrusting blow. And it worked quite effectively against uh, rifles as well. They'd, they'd use the weight of the, the shield, they'd lift it up and they'd drive it down on top of the, the rifle and pull away the, the, the bayonet point and then drive in the assegai. The initial entry of all three columns was unopposed. Owen Ellis was a veteran private in the first 24 foot, uh, who on the last day of the 18th of 1878, wrote to his family in Carnarvon, North Wales. In this spot, Helmika, the days are fine for those of summer, but we meet every night with heavy rains. Accompanied by thunder and lightning, which continue until six o'clock in the morning, on the 12th of December, there fell a heavy shower of hailstorms, which were as large as your fist, making it dangerous for anyone to be out at any time. One of them, weighed by the bandmaster, was three ounces in weight. I saw a hen being killed by the shower. There was some very good cattle pasture here, far better than what is on the other side, and this is beneficial for the farmers. Three weeks later, Alice was killed at Sandawana. On the 22nd of January, the centre column, which had advanced from Rourke's Drift, was encamped near Isandawana. On the morning of the day, Lord Chelmsford split his force and moved out to support a reconnoitring party. The British, using significant amount of cavalry for both reconnaissance and screening, were outmaneuvered by the main Zulu army of nearly 20,000 strong, led by General Kazoa. Chelmsford was lured eastward uh, with much of his centre column by the diversionary force, while the main Impey force attacked his camp. Chelmsford's decision not to set up the British camp defensively, contrary to established uh, protocol and doctrine, and ignoring information that the Zulus were in fact close at hand, were decisions that the British were soon to regret and in my opinion, were the primary cause for the defeat at Isandawana. The ensuing battle of Isandawana was the greatest victory the Zulus, in fact, uh, could, would enjoy during the war. The British centre column was wrecked and its camp annihilated, with heavy casualties as well as the loss of supplies, ammunition and transport. The defeat left Chelmsford no choice but to hastily retreat out of Zululand. In the battle's aftermath, a party of some 4,000 Zulu reserves mounted an authorised raid on the nearby British Army border post of Rourke's Drift and were driven off after 10 hours of ferocious fighting. So, I realise that this week's episode doesn't actually cover a battle per se, but I thought what I would do, because there's such a question mark hanging over Sandawana, um, I'd we drilled down into some fairly uh, gritty detail, if you if you like, if you'll uh, allow me. Um, and so I thought I would clear the decks with a little weapons talk for those that uh, like to get down and dirty with such things that go bang. You don't have to have you don't have to be much of a historian to 
come across these theories as to why the Zulu handed the Brits their well-pressed britches uh, at Isandawana. Uh, well, there was, look, there were seven theories, and as to why, uh, the main one was the Henry Martini rifle and its all of its flaws. Uh, so I thought I'd uh, use the rest of the episode uh, as a kind of weapons familiarisation class, <laughs> if you will. And we'll get down to nutting out the idiosyncrasies of the, the Henry Martini rifle. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> if you're interested in that sort of stuff, that that's great. If, if you're not then it's going to be a bit of a hard slog. But look, um, yeah, look, we'll try and make it as in- interesting as possible. But there's going to be some facts and figures and stuff like that thrown around as well. So just brace yourself. But look, I guess the main thing what I'm trying to do is just give you the information so that you can make your own mind up as to the battle effectiveness of this weapon. Um, I think it gets a bit of a, personally, you know, look, I think it gets a bit of a bad tag. I've watched it now firing and I've looked at the uh, the various issues involved with it and, and the main ones seem to be, yes, it was a bit, a bit of a disadvantage, but I think tactically they had placed themselves at, at, at yeah. a tactically bad uh, locale and they overlooked a lot of um, broken ground and more importantly, um, there was a lot of gullies out in front of the, uh, their firing area which was able to give dead ground cover to the attacking Zulus. So the Zulus could, could come very, very close very quickly uh, and be able to come upon them uh, very rapidly. So uh, the, their outward hitting distance uh, with the Henry Martini rifles uh, had been totally negated because uh, they could, you know, shoot out to four or five hundred metres and, you know, at a large mass sort of thing and, and be fairly certain to hit things. Um, but the, the broken ground around Sandawanda is, um, well, you just have to look at um, Zulu Dawn because they essentially filmed the whole thing on, on the battlefield itself. So. Go and have a look at the movie if you're interested, and you'll see what I mean. <laughs> there being a lot of gullies and um, dry creek beds and things like that that the Zulus were able to traverse and uh, close ground with the with the enemy. Lord Chelmsford himself noted, "I'm inclined to think that the first experience of the power of the Martini Henrys." will be of such a surprise to the Zulus that they will not be formidable after the first effort. Now, Richard West, uh, who wrote a book called The Most Perfect Weapons in the World, um, would liken himself as a, a, a weapons expert to the point where he'd write a book about it. And... There's a small extract that I thought would be of interest, so I'll, I'll read this out. Um, it's it's quite good, and I think it will help um, clear away some of the cobwebs. The Martini Henry rifles did great mischief. It is, it is with typical British understatement that the bandsman Joseph Bands 
of the 90th Life Infantry describes the effects of the Martini Henry rifle at the final battle of the Anglo-Zulu War at Ulundi in the 4th of July 1879. The Martini Henry was in fact one of the most devastating weapons available at the time, due in particular to its very high calibre, which was to prove to be a real man-stopper. The soldiers had much confidence in the Martini Henry, uh, and it led to Edward Hutton of the 3rd 60th Rifles remarking after the Battle of Jinjindaluvu that we all had the most utmost confidence in our rifles, which were at that time the most perfect weapons in the world. However, the reputation of the rifle through the years has not always been so glowing. Historians have often emphasised its faults uh, during the Zulu campaign, perhaps in an attempt to explain how veteran soldiers of the greatest imperial power of the day could be defeated by a nation perceived as savages on the slopes of the mountain of Isandawana. Near the Natal Mercury, indeed, the Natal Mercury commented on the British invasion force that this army could not be beaten the world over. This often epitomises the feeling amongst residents of Natal, uh, colonial officials and high-ranking uh, British officers. They were overconfident, stemming in part from the faith they had in their own firearms. Much historiography was reasoned that there must have been an abject failure of the British equipment or personal involvement to bring about the defeat of such as catastrophic as that at Isandawan. In particular, the ammunition myth that emerged as a convenient explanation for both historians and Chelmsford in light of the battle. More recently, however, as historians have redressed the issue, there is real appreciation for the quality of the Zulu army. This was an opinion voiced most strongly by the eminent David Rattray, asserting that it was indeed a great Zulu victory. It is difficult to find soldiers from the Zulu War uh, criticising their Martini Henrys uh, as poor weapons. Certainly there are minor criticisms regarding the jamming and the smoke produced because of the black powder and generally accounts are full of praise. Uh, it is possibly, it is perhaps only in light of the Sudanese campaign in the 18, mid-1880s that the Martini Henry began to gain bad press, in particular for overheating and jamming. Extensive source material is available on the Martini testing and performance evaluations during the Sudanese campaign from the War Office documents. Norris Newman was a war correspondent accompanying Chelmsford, published an autobiography, and this is useful as he was one of the few survivors of the Battle of Sandawana, and it documents the ammunition problem. Lieutenant Chard and Sergeant Reynolds both leave accounts of Rourke's Drift, but it is Henry Hook, VC, uh, who leaves us with the specific details <coughs> Of soldiers activities. The glaring weakness in any examination of the Zulu war literature is the lack of written Zulu sources. Only Bertram Mitford records narratives of the warrior at Isandawaft uh, 
nearly as possible in his own words. The trouble with many secondary works is that many authors have not fired the weapon they comment upon. And I'll interject here, and, and for myself, neither have I. Um, firing the Martini Henry is essentially an understanding of the weapon and its intricacies. Okay, thanks for that, Richard. Now, I went off in the name of due diligence and looked at all the videos of the Martini Henry uh, being fired, mainly by a lot of Americans who need to be able to fire every conceivable firearm on the planet <laughs> but there was quite a few good ones there and look one of the things that they suggested the accuracy wasn't great about the, the weapon was simply because uh, it had a huge amount of kick and uh, now most of the videos are of the men of medium size, they weren't huge men, and they weren't particularly young men either, they were firing them, and um, they were experienced riflemen by, by their stance, and you can see that they were probably firing it, and it would have had about roughly the same kick um, as I would liken to a 7.62, uh, like a, a NSLR, FAL, SLR sort of thing, it was a, a, a roughly about the same kind of punchback sort of thing and and like well you have to hang on to it of course but like it's it's you can you can keep up sustained fire for quite a while sort of thing it's not it's not gonna break your shoulder or anything like that now most of them were using black powder and also the other thing i watched for um for accuracy was the amount of jump from the the, the front of the muzzle uh, to see how much it lifted when it fired and there was some jump but it seemed to be a fairly well balanced rifle much more so than, than I was expecting to tell you the truth uh, considering how old it is but the the guys who were the firing they they weren't uh, complaining about the kick they uh, seemed to be quite pleased with the action and um, yeah they were they they were hitting fairly accurately. What's the problem with it? Well, let's dig down and see if we can find out. And I think the um, it might be safe to say that the the answer might be in the tail of the tape. Okay, here it is. Now, it's it's essentially an eight pound seven ounce weapon. Um, it's about forty nine inches long, uh, which is and to normal people it's um, twelve hundred and forty five millimeters long and the barrel length itself is 33.22 inches which is translates to 844 okay it's the ammunition I, I find that's the ammunition is going to be the interesting part of this now just bear in mind that these weapons were just starting to use rolled brass so that it was completely enclosed and they were using black powder which is it doesn't shoot at the same velocity as uh, more modern ammunition. The muzzle velocity of these rounds is about 1300 feet per second or 400, uh, 400 meters odd per second. Now to give you some sort of, I just went to the 303 just as it's a pretty standard weapon sort of thing, most people are familiar with it. It's got a 744 uh, meters per, per second, 2441 feet per second. 
and I guess the SLR is like 823 metres per second. So, yeah, it's it's the, the round itself is quite quite a slow-moving round. Um, however, the cartridges themselves are enormous. Like, it's a 0.577 round. And it's, yeah, it's a dirty, great big chunk of steel. Um, so, yes, so when it does hit, it's it's going to hit very hard and apparently it was very effective when it hit bone because it had simply smashed the bone and you know in those days that was the end of that person you could write them off pretty well effectively it had a rate of fire of about 12 rounds per minute uh, which was the, the best in the world at that stage of the game this is before bolt actions uh, were widespread and um, but the bolt actions were just starting to to come in, I think the Germans were uh, experimenting with bolt actions uh, on with the Mausers, and but it's a it's a breech loaded weapon. So essentially, you'd have a, a round um, that you'd take out of your little bag, and you'd push it down against um, just behind where the sights go, and it's got a little block that folds down and you push it down into the gap and then it clips back up again and that's it that's all you got to do so it's a single action kind of you just keep feeding it in one at a time so feed one in fire it feed one in fire it sort of thing so you can knock off about 12 name shops per minute which is pretty good you know considering before that uh if you're using mini balls and, and things like that you'd be you'd, you'd be knocking them out at about Probably, if you're very quick, you'd, you'd knock out about four rounds uh, per minute. Usually most people could manage three. The, th the thing about it is, because it was such a large round, and it was moving at such a, a low speed, the bullet drop was, you know, fairly intense sort of thing. And that's where I think, this is where we get to it. Because it's got a long range. It's got a, like, 19... 100 yard range um, which is about 1700 meters which is when you think about it that's that's its maximum range the, 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 the 303 is 3000 your effective range was essentially over 300 meters about 370 meters or 400 yards so that that will tell you that you can engage the enemy from a long way off and particularly considering it was a massed enemy okay so why didn't it work okay well there, there were certain aspects first of all the cartridges themselves apparently the base of the cartridge had a tendency of of tearing off from the bottom of the round when uh, the extractor claw grabbed hold of the round uh, it would literally tear the bottom of the round off leaving the, the gun jammed now, the second part of that is, in order for the ramrods uh, to look uniform with the rest of the weapon, they had to cut it short, sort of thing. So, the ramrod didn't reach all the way down to the bottom of the, to the back of the chamber, sort of thing. So, <laughs> yeah, so it was a bit, yeah, it was a bit dodgy that, in that respect. So, yes, as I said before, slow muzzle velocity and a big bullet drop. So the ranges needed to be set, and of course they weren't, because when when Sandawana was set up, it wasn't set up uh, according to military dictates. 
they hadn't set out the ranges and the range markers, so whoever was calling the ranges, because they needed to constantly adjust the ranges to be accurate, because when you've got such a large bullet drop, the bullets will miss on either side of accurate uh, out of distance. A fairly long, you know, like the distance between hitting and missing is like a whole um, man's body sort of thing. It's like the whole height of a man's body. That's 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 what a big run that's what a big difference it can make. So they were either shooting high or they were shooting too low when they were shooting at the front ranks. And as I discussed before, it supposedly has a brutal kick, but I, I can't really I can't really state that myself. I haven't shot one, but the, the people who were shooting them did not seem to be, like they were braced, but they didn't seem to be copying it any worse than any other large ball weapon that I've seen. And I think part of the reason is because the muzzle velocity is so low that, you know, it, it, it takes away a fair bit of the kick. So just keep all of that in mind for next week. Join us next time for the Battle of Asanawana. And when we'll have a look at the battle uh, that would produce the Victoria Crosses, that would change the very nature of how the medal was to be awarded. And just before we go, I just want to once again thank Alfred for... Uh, putting in a terrific effort and he did an awful lot of uh, back research as well um, just so that we'd be able to have a authentic understanding of the Zulus uh, from their perspective in, in all of this and uh, also keeping me on the straight and narrow of course is uh, the self-appointed fact checker uh, Pip who uh, also uh, appears with me in my other podcast that I do, which is called Considered and Conceited, but um, fair warning, it's got explicit language and it's a, a movie review podcast uh, slash comedy. So we have we just have a lot of fun there. It's all very unprofessional. <laughs> so, and also, don't forget to, uh, if you're enjoying this, don't forget to, uh, write and review uh, on iTunes or whatever, wherever you're picking up the podcasts. Spread the word because it all helps and it all helps get the uh, podcast growing. And, um, you know, that's that's ultimately the, the aim of the game, so to speak, is, you know, to spread the word about uh, history. And thank you. Until then, bye-bye.
You have probably lived through major events in history. What if you were part of the most pivotal event of the last 200 years? This podcast aims to bring to you the real war experienced by real soldiers in their own words. World War I, Digger History Podcast.